This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of Matt D'Elia is Confused. My guest this week is a man named Freddie DeBoer. For anyone who knows about Freddie... They probably know about his fall from grace. Um, and if you know about Freddie, you probably also have a strong opinion about Freddie. But a little backstory on Freddie. And before I uh, start the episode, Freddie was a member of what I believe is known as the Dirty Left, which is a minority uh, among the far left that is sort of doesn't subscribe to the sort of orthodoxy that the left presents. Um, it's sort of critical of the left while also embracing um, a lot of its, its core um, tenets, socialism, et cetera. But it's very critical of its ways and how it goes about attaining uh, what, what it's after. And Freddie was a very, outspoken member of this group very uh successful his writing could be found on many places he's a phenomenal writer a really brilliant mind um but and this is why i, w I wanted him on the show uh, uh at least initially um uh his fall from grace so his fall from grace uh he kind of always was mixing it up on social media on twitter he's, he's kind of a lightning rod and this is around 2017, and he accused a contemporary, a, 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 a fellow writer, really, of uh, on Twitter, I believe. He, he accused him of rape, uh, which is fucking uh, supremely shitty because it was not true, and, and Freddie knew it was not true. He basically just made it up and tried to fucking ruin this guy's life. Uh, collateral damage be damned and 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 the guy's name is malcolm harris that he accused and it was totally baseless um eventually though freddie came clean about that and he came clean in a way that i found extremely uh interesting and sort of challenging to my existing idea about of of just forgiveness and who we let back in to the arena, who we let have a voice and all that kind of stuff. He came forward and just took full responsibility, completely came clean about how the fact about the fact that he lied and uh, stepped said he was stepping away from social media and writing in general. And this was in 2017 and he actually has stuck to it and he's been fucking absolutely absent uh, in every way. He hasn't even really talked to anybody. This is, I, I think this is the first conversation 
that he's had uh, uh, in the public sphere at all. I mean, I know he hasn't been writing. I don't think he's done any interviews. Why the fuck he came on this show, uh, I don't know, but he did. And I'm really grateful that he did because the, the questions that he sort of forces force, forces one to confront about forgiveness, uh, I think, are very, very interesting. I, I actually believe, and we talk about this at length, um, I believe that Malcolm Harris has, has explicitly not forgiven him. Um, and, I, and, and Freddie doesn't expect him to. He knows damn well. Uh, he says himself that if, 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 if it happened to him, he doesn't know if he would forgive the person that did it to him. He's just very open-eyed about all of this. And, and, and my take on it is, look, if we're going to accept apologies at all, which we obviously should. I mean, we're a society and a culture that embraces reform and sort of uh, really values it. And so, you know, if someone's going to say, hey, I fucked up, I don't want to do it again, I'm taking these measures to never do it again, and I'm going to be better, and then if they are better, as they say they're going to be, I don't know. If the the door's not open for someone like that to be let back in, uh, to be forgiven, then I don't know who the fuck the door is open for. Um, And... That's just my opinion. Obviously, you have your own opinion, and you're about to hear my conversation with Freddie. And, and at first, the first half is basically just about this, the accusation and the fallout and, and his mental health and all that stuff, which I'll let come from his mouth, not mine. But then we actually get into a lot of his writing from before uh, the fallout of, of what he did, because I find his writing to be genuinely important work um and we sort of get into some some specific pieces of his and and you know being on the left myself as well i find it uh necessary for the left to have its own critics within its own ranks to sort of improve and and keep within the fucking guardrails you know to make sure it doesn't go off the rails uh um and and i think freddie was and hopefully will once again be um a, a, a voice, uh, someone uh, on the left uh, and among its uh, sharpest critics, because we can use that. Anyway, uh, this intro has been long enough. Uh, here is my conversation with Freddie DeBoer. Okay. My name is Freddie DeBoer. I am a uh, canceled, semi-exile uh, academic and writer who uh, works for uh, Brooklyn College at the City, uh, University of New York. Uh, I uh, am a minor administrator there. Uh, I have written for um, a bunch of uh, newspapers and magazines and websites, but I'm no longer doing uh, text-based journalism because I've been in semi-exile uh, since uh 2017. So semi-exile, <clears throat> just to get it covered and then move on. It, uh, do you want to? I mean, I, I, I could say what the just. Object- <laughs> I, could, I could 
today talk about it. I don't care. I'm not okay, to cool. It. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. What, the re- one of the reasons or the reason actually I wanted to talk to you about it is because of the way you handled it, which is which is something that like anytime something like this happens, I, I, I feel like the way that you handled it was like is like there's one way to handle it and the way you handle it is the way to handle it. So you, you made an accusation against uh, a contemporary of yours uh, of sexual yeah. assault and yeah. and it was false and you It was it was totally false. It was totally false and you uh, the process of you I mean we don't need to get into like the the reasons why necessarily but like the process of you coming clean about it what was like the time frame of that like so you make the accusation and then it, it so yeah yeah Let me, I'm, I'm gonna have to have a little bit of a preamble here please important that i be understood please. um so i'm going to be talking about my mental illness because it uh is plays a profound role in all this mm-hmm. but um you know i <clears throat> i i've always been someone who gets hate mail sometimes and uh a particular kind of hate mail that I have gotten, uh, I don't know, a half dozen times in the last couple of years has been, you know, you did something bad and then you blamed it on your mental illness. Mm. And I, uh, I really am viscerally angry about that because I've never done that. Right. I mean, and when I say never, I mean, going back to when I was first hospitalized, when I was 21 years old, I've never said that things that I do while manic, uh, are not my fault. I, I 100% take responsibility for the things that I, I did and the things that I said. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand the difference between culpability and responsibility. And um, whatever my mindset, I have to be the one to take uh, take the blame and to face the music for this stuff. And that's what I've tried to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 2017, uh, starting in early 2017, uh, I was uh, untreated uh, for my uh, bipolar disorder, uh, which is not unusual. Um, for my adult life, I've been un- um, out of treatment for far longer than I have been in treatment. Mm. Um, and uh, I began to descend into a manic state. I have uh, very slow, long cycles. And so one of the things that happens when you have a very slow cycle is can be really hard to perceive yourself shifting into that state, right? Because mm. it happens so fast. Right, right, right. Uh, the summer got very bad. I made a, a series of very poor decisions. Um, and uh, I uh, lost some friendships, as I have in the past. Uh, in late August or maybe mid-August, I accused Malcolm Harris, uh, who is a very talented writer, uh, uh, of uh, sexual assault, he had tweeted out somebody else's list of um, sort of like left-wing enemies. So it was a list of people who were perceived as being insufficiently supportive of Antifa. Got it. At the time, I thought that in my you know not very clear mindset, I thought that he was the one who had written the list. Um, and in that state, um, I uh, I. Uh, decided to hit him with the weapon that seemed most powerful to me at the time, which was a sexual assault accusation. Mm. Uh, it was in, immediately called out, as it should have been, and rejected by people as being uh, full crazy. Mm. Um, and so uh, that 
And so that was sort of, you know, my third or fourth canceling happened at that time. Mm. Um, but, you know, uh, it's, I've been canceled several times before. You were used to it by then, yeah. I'm used to it, yeah. <laughs> um, so that was – the thing is, is, you know, the Internet only knows the parts of the story that happened on the Internet. Mm. In part because, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not out here broadcasting all the shitty things that I did. Of course. Um but there was a couple other things, and one of those things was, uh, I think it was the day before. Anyway, one of those days, right around the, the day that it happened, or maybe the day before, I had um, threatened someone mm. who I thought was conspiring to harm me, which is a common feature of my manic period. Mm. And I, I threatened them, and... Uh, being a uh, criminal genius, I threatened them in a voicemail. Uh, uh, yeah, and they said, "Look, um, if you do go to the hospital tomorrow, um, I might not go to the cops, or I might go to the cops. I don't know. If you don't go to the hospital tomorrow, I'm definitely going to the cops." Wow. So, yeah. So I, I called my brother. Um, he came up from DC, and we went to. Uh, hospital with a psychiatric emergency room uh, the next day. And uh, that was the beginning of a lot of changes in my life. And, and, <laughs> and so that was, that was end of summer, 2017, you said? Yeah, or, or mid, mid, mid to end, yeah. All right, yeah. And so what, and then the process of you coming forward ab- about the accusation, was that, shortly after you had committed to uh, getting treated, or was that like at the end of the process of you having sort of coming out of it? So I, I want to say that that, that that post I wrote was like a year after. Um, maybe it was more like nine months. Okay. Um, so I, uh, you know, I went from being on no medications to being on five a day, sometimes six. Uh, I had been out of therapy for years and I was in, uh, went into cognitive behavioral therapy at first. Uh, I had to see a social worker as a condition of my release from the hospital, mm. um, <clears throat> where I was not admitted long-term, but that's a whole nother, uh, follow up. Right. Um, uh, I, uh, I sobered up. I didn't, uh, have a drink of alcohol for, uh, a year and a half. I did AA for a year. Uh, you know, I basically just sort of dedicated myself to trying to get well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I went into exile from the internet. I uh, deleted and have stayed off of um, all social media. I dramatically curtailed my um, consumption of news and commentary and things like that. And I basically spent a year in Brooklyn as a kind of hermit. Um, <laughs> You know, I would go to the library and read at night. Um, I would uh, go to the gym and try to stay in something like tight shape. Uh, but uh, I didn't uh, do basically any socializing at all. I mean, really, maybe three times in a year did I do anything that could be considered social. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and and <clears throat> so, yeah, you're, you're still off of, of social media then, right? Yeah, and that's permanent, yeah. That's permanent. I, I'm, um, yeah, I, you know, I think when 
you do something that's as bad as a behavior is what I did to Malcolm. I think that you need to make, I think it, there's, you know, there's a kind of restitution that you have to make and um, uh, you need to demonstrate this, that you understand the seriousness of the situation to other people. Sure. Yeah. And, yeah, and, the, and the best way that I found to do that is by staying away. And I'm much healthier and happier when I'm off social media anyway. So. Yeah, I mean, that was going to be my next question. I think that's a, a thing you hear a lot, people saying, I wish I could get off social media or one should curtail or, or quit it. And nobody really fucking actually does it. I mean, you had like the springboard of a reason to do it, but it's it's interesting to 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 say you're not going to and then actually not do it and have no... Uh, no um, idea of, of even ever rejoining or re-upping with any of those things. That, that's interesting. And, and I'm, 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 I'm interested also in, in the, I mean, I know you changed a lot of things, but do you think, and you said your news intake as well, you've kind of cut that a lot as well. Do you find that that has had, if you could isolate those things, do, what, what, how would you say that the, that has affected you? Yeah, so I mean, it's hard, right? Because right. in light of all these other changes, it's hard to tell. I mean, right. I think that if not all, if the, all the other stuff hadn't been going on, um, uh, then it would probably have been harder to quit social media. Mm. But you know, I was at uh, I hit rock bottom and was climbing out of this very deep hole that I dug myself, and so it was easy in that in that uh, context. Right. Uh, um. <clears throat> I definitely think that uh, there's this reflexive need, you know, I mean, I was, I was someone who would go and, you know, if I was waiting in line at the bathroom, I would just, you know, pull my, my screen down so that I refresh something over and over and over again. Yeah. And that kind of reflective, you know, lab rat getting a piece of food by pressing, pressing a lever kind of stuff. Um, it really did, when you get rid of that, it really does open up a certain kind of space in your mind. Um, yeah. I, I, I definitely feel like I have less need for um, immediate stimulation. And so, for example, it's made reading easier again. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I, I've always read a lot, but it was definitely was harder before than it is now because, you know, I can go more than a few pages and not think to myself, you know, there might be an email on my phone. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that. Is, I, I the same way. I I I have that exact problem, and and I've come to it's like crystallized recently. My reading has has just it. The I don't read less, but at a time I read way less because like I'll, I'm always stopping myself if I get an email alert or a fucking text or if it makes me think of something, I'll like look it up on my phone. It, even that shit is just like it, it 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 affects so. It's like a domino effect with so many other things that it's affecting in my life. Um, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, that that that's uh, that kind of speaks a bit to what uh, the next question I wanted to ask about it, which was like. Um, the, the response to your coming forward and coming as clean as someone can come about it, I, I, I'm curious as to what that reaction was like on the internet, because I feel like, and I think this is just universally agreed upon, it's so much easier to snipe and be shitty from the internet than it was mm-hmm. sort of before. Was, was the response to you coming clean sort of 
was it acceptance at all or was it like kind of like reluctant acceptance or was it just generally like well fuck this guy who cares let's make him put his money where his mouth is yeah you know i can say that um that was a time when i was very glad that i was not on twitter right yeah um so and i and i can i can i can genuinely honestly say that i saw none of the response to that um, that's good on social media which is which is nice and good for my <laughs> for my sanity um, for sure yeah i did get a lot of emails um they were probably 75 percent uh positive 25 percent negative um you know and it's it was, it was similar like when it all went down you know i got just an enormous outpouring of uh of support from people along with you know a lot of people who were really mad at me right. um, in my inbox i got uh when like that weekend the weekend that i went to the hospital when i came uh came back to check uh like looking at things again and paying attention to email and things like that there was a couple emails that were like this is it man this is your chance to kill yourself oh my this, god you gotta, you gotta take this chance right now you know stuff like that that's the internet for you that is fucking um, dark yeah yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but a lot of people said, you know, um, said to me, you know, the, the people who bothered to reach out to me personally, and I said, no, I appreciated you're doing that. Mm. Um, and I, you know, of course, didn't do it to get credit for doing that. Of course, yeah. Um, you know, Malcolm, uh, as far as I know, has not accepted the apology. We actually, uh, I, I emailed him and I said, look, man, like, I need to get this off my chest and I need to set this right. If I want to write a post apologizing to you, but if you don't want me to do that, I won't. Mm. He, he said, you know, it, it depends on what it says. And so I just, I wrote a draft and sent it to him and he made a bunch of edits and sent it back and said, how about this? And I said, okay. Um, and that's, and that's what we have on the site. So, um, but yeah, he's absolutely under no obligation to forgive me. You know, I, right. mean, I, I might probably wouldn't forgive me either. Right. Yeah, I saw I saw some of his response to that. I thought I, I I just feel like the your coming clean and even really his response. It just felt really like I don't know, maybe honesty breeding honesty. You know, he, he was like, mm-hmm. I don't know if I can accept it, but this is cool. It, it felt I don't know. I, I feel like that's the version of this thing that I never mm-hmm. ever ever see. You know, I mean, more often than not, I would say people hold fast to shit that they've done they've said that isn't true because they don't want to fucking do what you did and sort of fall on the sword and then on the other side it's like it's so easy to say no fuck that i'm not even going to acknowledge the 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 apology but you know the i find that like i'm always i'm always thinking well everyone's gonna fuck up even massive fuck ups i'm i'm always gonna feel like I'd rather let somebody back in than keep them out forever, especially if they're going to come as clean as you did, you know? And, um, I don't know. I just thought it was, I thought it was cool. And and an example of the, the, the rightest possible way to do all that stuff. Um, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, man. Uh, How, how are you now? Like how's, how's life now? So, um, life now is okay. Um, you know, um, there's a bunch of petty little things that go along with the meds, mm. uh, and the meds will just sort of always be a drag. But the good news is, is that 
I've been on meds now for two years, which is far and away the longest I've ever managed to yeah. have meds before. So and it really feels like it's different this time, which is good. Uh, you know, and there's it's like um my hands shake. Uh I gained fifty-five pounds in ten weeks, you know. Yeah. Um <laughs> there are a bunch of side effects which are pretty cool, but that's sure. life. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I and once again not in therapy, although I'm working on it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, my job is something I'm very, very lucky to have. Um, I mean, I, I belong at a college campus, and I'm on one of beautiful ones. Um, Brooklyn College is an, an amazing um, uh, community, and you know, it's a good unionized public sector job. So I have uh, good health insurance and benefits and job security. So. That's great. And are you back in, are you thinking about or act, actively getting back into where you were before in the writing realm? Because I mean, I, I love your work and I'm curious as to what you see for yourself in that, in that arena. So uh, I am not going back to text writing. I'm not going to be doing like news cycle based mm-hmm. um, sort of short bangers, you know, like 500 buck bangers I, I would churn out for a website like the New Republic or, uh, you know, whatever, um, or Politico. But um, uh, my first book, uh, the publisher has just accepted the final manuscript. Wow. Uh, all, all the edits are done, and uh, it will be coming in early 2020. Oh, shit. That's fucking yeah. cool. Congratulations, man. Yeah, absolutely. Do you mind telling me a really little bit about it? About it. Yeah, sure. It's called The Cult of Smart. Okay. Um, and it is about uh, the way that intelligence has become, has come to be seen as the only defining virtue of uh, a person's worth, the defined value of a person's worth mm. in our society, particularly economically. And I talk a little bit about why that's fucked up. Um, how it hurts our kids, how it hurts our schools and teachers, how it hurts our economy. Yeah. I mean, the basic, I guess, if I could break it down to that brass tacks, like the basic analytical thing is this, which is in the last couple decades of the 20th century, the American economy changed. And specifically, uh, the uh, good middle-class job that only required a high school diploma began to die. Right. And now there's a lot of people blame a lot of different things for that. There's controversy, um, deindustrialization, mm-hmm. globalization, uh, the rise of cheap immigrant labor, whatever. Uh, people, you know, different people from different um, uh, ideological viewpoints on different things. Mm-hmm. One thing or another, we know for a fact that the um, uh, that the benefits of going to college grew and grew, the economic benefits mm-hmm. of going to college grew and grew. So the, the policy apparatus of, of the United States looks at this and says, okay, we have the situation where only people who are good at school uh, can go on to have the good life. Right. What you might do is you might say, well, then let's uh, create a more redistributive economy with more robust government programs that uh, can help uh, ensure that people who don't have a college degree can still lead comfortable lives. That's one avenue you could go down. Mm-hmm. 
But of course, the billionaire class does not like that yeah. because that that takes money out of their pocket. Yeah. And so we, we go the other direction, which is to say, if it pays to be one of the smart kids, we'll just make everybody one of the smart kids. Oh. And so like that, this is uh, epitomized in uh, No Child Left Behind, yeah. which had literal 100% performance goals. That's exactly what I thought of, yeah, that when you yeah. started talking about this. Yeah, for sure, yeah. yeah. Um, there's two problems with this, and I go at uh, great length about this in the book. The first problem is that if everybody becomes a smart kid, then the economic value of being a smart kid will die, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a matter of supply and demand. If you have, uh, if everyone has a college diploma, then the economic value of a college diploma necessarily becomes zero because it's no longer a distinction that matters against your potential peers. Right. Um, and so from the standpoint of the system, uh, trying to get everyone a, a college diploma doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. You know, there's research from the National Bureau, uh, Bureau of Economic Research that says the college wage premium, you know, the advantage that you get to your salary based on whether it had a college degree or not, is pretty simplistically a matter of the ratio between the number of jobs that need college uh, diplomas and the number of people who have them. Mm. So if we jack up that number of people who have them higher and higher and the number of jobs is not guaranteed at all to increase, then uh, we're running in place. Right. And then the other big reason why this doesn't work is that uh, not everybody is cut out to be good at school. Right. Uh, uh, a lot of people have different val- values and they have different abilities. They have different strengths. They have different insights. And it's a profound shrinking of the kind of ways to be a valuable human being uh, that exists out there to say everyone has to be a school person. Everyone has to be an academic. Right. And that's the book. Yeah, that sounds, that's, that's, uh, I mean, I would read the shit out of that. Yeah. I mean, when I think about just even like my generation, I'm 35 and I feel like the idea of college was so different before I went to college and after I went to college, because Mm -hmm. before I went to college, it was like to get a fucking good job, you had to go to college. And if you did, then you could get a good job. But I feel like now, I mean, and I'm sure you can speak to this a bit, you can even go to college and the chances of you getting a good job out of college are now fucking low, you know? And, I, and, I'm, and I'm curious if there's like a correlation between the kind of thing that you're talking about and is the idea that basically we're trying to jam too many people into college and then when they get out, there's too much competition from the people that have gone to college? Yeah, so let's break it down to like a specific field, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, a pharmacy. So for um, a long time, uh, you know, pharmacy was a, uh, and, and remains, to be clear, uh, uh, certainly, uh, a, a viable career path for people, one that had produced a uh, uh stable number of jobs and that um, required special training but could provide um, above average income uh, incomes and um, unusually low uh, unemployment rates for people mm-hmm. trained to be pharmacists. People noticed this fact. Administrators noticed this fact. Bureaucrats noticed this fact. Blancs noticed this fact. 
what do colleges start to do? They start to open up tons of new pharmacy programs. And when I say tons of new programs, I mean, in the span of a decade or so, there were literally hundreds of new uh, pharmacy programs <laughs> at colleges and universities in the United States. So now we've got new students who are filing into these pharmacy programs and they're getting churned out. Yeah. Well, what happens to the young graduates of these pharmacy programs? They find that there are now thousands of new competitors, mm -hmm. thousands more than there would have been before this glut happened. And it depresses their wages and makes it harder to find a job. Right. And it's and it's it's just the simplest economics you can imagine, right? Yeah. If you flood the market with pharmacy, uh, people with pharmacy degrees, then the advantage of having that pharmacy degree shrinks. Yeah. Now I'm not pretending going to pretend that you know I'm weeping tears for the poor pharmacy grads sure. compared to compared to a lot of people they're doing good. Yeah. The point is simply that. Uh, that basic dynamic of students flooding into particular fields because they hear their safe havens mm -hmm. only for that, that economic uh, advantage to go away uh, is something that we have to think about on a systemic level. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, is that sort of – because, I mean, there's so much shit about universities and colleges. I mean, the, the admission scandal and all that shit and um, – I, I, I'm curious if that's sort of somehow a reflection of them being private schools and becoming so bloated they have to be run like businesses. Is that like part of what we're talking about here? Well, I should I should say at the outset that you know you kind of I mean we're talking about the administrative bloat of the universities. Yeah. System. Um, I'm kind of part of that bloat in my <laughs> job at Brooklyn College. I mean, I, I do accreditation and I do a lot of the sort of bean counting and number crunching that uh, a lot of the professors think doesn't really need to exist. Um, that being said, yeah, I mean, look, um, universities are, the, the traditional university uh, was a feudal structure. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they literally, you know, it's the, the structure was the product of times that uh, essentially were feudalist. Mm -hmm. And it was a feudal structure in its basic layout and in how the different op uh, areas operated. And in particular that, you know, it used to be the case that like a given academic department was its own fiefdom and there was really broad latitude for, uh, for the professors and the leaders of that department to determine uh, you know, how they wanted to act, what their values were. But there's a, a corporate uh, movement that's been uh, overtaking academia and has basically eaten academia mm. in the last, uh, you know, depending on who you ask, 50, 60, 75 years. Um, and so these structures, these old institutions that have been around forever are kind of stumbling into being corporate where they were once uh, feudal. Right, and that produces um, a lot of angst. So a lot of people don't like it, and it produces inefficiency. It produces bloat, and uh, there's just a lot of things that universities have to do now, or are perceived to have to do, that they didn't used to have to do. And all those things attracts a new administrator with a hundred thousand dollars salary. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, for example. And this, this actually kind of uh, is a little controversial. Um, universities are spending tons and tons of money now on, uh, on, di on diversity initiatives. Yeah. 
to where once upon a time you might have had an assistant dean who, uh, uh, as one of his several duties, was in charge of uh, diversity at the college. Now you have a diversity center which has its own associate provost who has, you know, three mid-level administrators underneath them, mm. each of whom has, uh, you know, their own secretary and maybe a graduate assistant, right? And, and the money just adds up and up and up. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, what is it controversial on which side of that? Like the, the, the fact that those have been established, you're saying? Those kinds of divisions? No. Oh. I, I, mean, I mean, it's controversial to criticize them because... Right. So many people think that the you know that there's a, a strong need for more diversity sure. in colleges and universities, and I, I would agree. Right. But uh, it's unclear to me that the best way to, to get more diversity on a college campus is to start paying some associate provost uh, $200,000 to be in charge of it and build them a new building and et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, that seems like a fair or good segue into maybe talking about the, the, the left in general, which I know you are, uh, staunchly on, the, I think you'd say you're on the far left, correct? Uh, that's correct. Yeah. I, I, as, as I would, but I know that a lot of your writing has, has been critical of the left that you are a part of. And that's something that I definitely want to just talk about and see how you're feeling about that stuff now as we sort of ramp up into this insane presidential season. Um, I <clears throat> the, the, the lack of critics of the left within the left, I want to talk about that a little bit. Uh, and mm-hmm. and it, uh, you wrote an article, it was the Iron Law of Institutions or, and the Left or something like that. And, mm-hmm. and it was sort of about this in general and this idea that I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but to me, I, the way I read it as it was, it was talking about how to capitalize on the problems within the structure uh, for one's own advance is advantageous, but it doesn't help the movement at large, right? I mean, right, I'm sure yes. you could, yeah. So Jonathan Schwartz is a guy who came up with uh, this concept of the iron law of institutions. I believe he works for the intercept, but I'm, you know, that, that might be uh, several years out of date. Um, the iron law of institutions simply says this, that anyone who works within an, an institution will work in a way that's designed to secure their place in that institution rather than in the, uh, best interest of the institution itself. And so he, he talks about, um, you know, you can look at, at corporate America and you can find businesses that failed where the uh, the people inside of the, of the business who you would think would be mostly interested in preserving the business um, instead continue to do behaviors that only strengthen their hands within the institution. Right. And so when I talk about that in relationship to the left, um, I'm simply acknowledging the fact or trying to acknowledge the fact that there are certain kinds of claims, uh, claims of offense generally, that are made uh, very, very frequently within the left, mm. which uh, are recount some sort of a grievance that the person has on, on grounds that are considered progressive. Right. Uh, 
the problem, and and that is a way to be a leftist or a way a way to be uh, to be woke. I guess I would prefer to say right is to be someone who gets up every morning and finds something to have a grievance about. Mm. The problem with that is that um, political movements can't operate effectively within with uh, constant turmoil and inner fighting going on and hope to be at all successful. Yeah. Uh, but that is the iron law of institutions because by being grievance mongers, they elevate themselves. They get more likes and retweets. They are they come to be seen as a face of the digital online left. Yeah. Um, but they're hurting the actual progress of their uh, of their movement. Now, I want to say really clearly, mm-hmm. people get offended very often because something offensive has happened. Right. And people have grievances because we live in a world with profound injustice. Yeah. The question is, is is every perceived injustice a real injustice? Is every grievance a grievance that's worth uh, voicing? And that's the question. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the <clears throat> I think the problem that, that I see, I think I hear this phrase a lot and I think it's, it, it speaks to what we're talking about now, which is, is the left can't help but eat itself. And, mm-hmm. and I think that that is sort of the, 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 uh, the, the definition of it almost. I mean, you're talking about it's, it's, it almost, you can't, you, you can't help but perpetuate the problem of the, th- of the thing you're trying to ostensibly push forward. You know, I mean, it's it 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 becomes this, and I see this more on the left than on the right. But maybe that's just because I am on the left and I'm paying more attention to that and to the success or failure of the movement. But I find that like, if you're not in step, vertically aligned with the talking points that you're supposed to be vertically aligned with, then you're going to get smashed. And I I find that to be not helpful at at all um and and i know you've written a lot about that too just in general this idea that like i mean you yourself being a critic and someone on the left was that sort of like you know you said you've been canceled a few times before was this desire was this desire to cancel you before any of this happened simply Uh, go ahead yeah uh I guess I think the the way I sum it all that up is just there is there is no such thing as an inter- internal critic of the left, right? Mm. Like the, that that the the discourse norms of today's left has elim- have eliminated the the position of the internal critic of the left, and uh, that's just profoundly profoundly unhealthy for any political movement or orientation. Mm. Um, you know, I uh, when I started out, I, I first wrote a blog post in 2008. Uh, I was unemployed, and I went to the public library and started a blog because uh, it literally felt like I had something else going on in my life. And back then, you know, it used to be a thing that you would read conservatives uh, stuff. And then you would argue with them in your blog, or you would argue with a conservative on Twitter, not like just flame each other, but actually like say, here's my position, and then the other person would say different things. Right. Um, I don't. I'm not a fetishist for for dialogue. I don't think that dialogue is always instructive. But mm. 
uh, under those conditions, it was a lot easier to be someone who said, uh, I'm, I, I believe this, but not, not, but not this, right? right. Like, the, the the right that is not extended today is the right to say, I believe in X, but not in Y. Right. But but the fact that I don't believe in Y does not undermine my commitment to X. Yeah. I mean, that has to be exacerbated by social media, just in general. I mean, the the... the it seems to be directly correlated, really. I mean, the, 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 it's so easy to sort of misinterpret and pull sound bites and sort of create a mob. And it, it just is so... Here's the thing. For me, it's just so clearly unhelpful to the, to the cause at, in the larger sense that this iron law thing, it, it seems to perfectly crystallize what, what the deal is. Because... It totally, it, it, here's, it, from the other side, right, if you're looking at it from the right, if, to, to just try to imagine myself on the right or as an independent, I feel like it's just, it, it, it creates this sort of like silo where it's like, if I don't align with that entirely, then I can't get in even on the fringe of it, you know? Mm-hmm. And it, it, it doesn't allow for more people to come join, which is, ostensibly the idea if if in 2020 we're trying to get the fucking president out of office you want to pull people in and i think that the one the the clearest way to do that to to not do that is to say these are all the things we think and if you are out of step on even one of them then you can't be in this group and the thing is it's not even the people you lose are not even people who are not only people who have some heterodox views, who have some views that are contrarian or unusual to the left. It's also people who just find the whole battlefield so terrifying Mm. that they they just say, I'm not going to play this game, right? So most people are conflict avoidant. And if you look at a a, a community like left Twitter, where there are so many minefields, yeah. Where literally every day someone says something that kicks off a mass of public shaming. Mm-hmm. Most people, when they see that, they're going to say, I'm not risking that. <laughs> and so I'm not going to get involved. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's the worst part, really, actually. I mean, it's just, it has this silencing effect. You wrote another, some, you know, wrote another piece called Planet of Cops that's kind of like in, in this realm where mm-hmm. you, talk about how just everyone's a cop and this sort of like cultural embrace of this like cop-ish attitude. And I think, you know, that's kind of exactly what we're talking about. And, 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 it, and, it, and it creates fear. And people, just like they don't want to fucking be around cops, you know, because God forbid something goes wrong and there's some misunderstanding, you're going to walk on the other side of the street if you see a cop. It creates this thing where it's like, well, I don't even know... I know what I mean, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm thinking this through, and this is not a thing that should get me in trouble. This is not, there's no problem with the thing I'm saying. But I feel like everyone's just like, I don't know. Maybe I just shouldn't bother saying that. And when you get in the mindset of, well, I shouldn't bother. It's, you're censoring yourself before the thing even comes out of your mouth. And, and I feel like that's like just such a direct avenue to, to not getting the best possible ideas out there. You know, I mean, it's a it's a bizarre assumption that seems to be nearly universal these days that um, 
that everyone has an obligation to constantly be policing the political bona fides of everyone else. That is profoundly new. Yeah. It is profoundly strange. I would argue that it's contrary to human nature, but it is a, the kind of change that happened so gradually that nobody noticed it. And yeah. then all of a sudden you wake up one day and you, you look at left Twitter and, you know, um, we really cannot underestimate the impact of social media and its technologies uh, on this because, you know, I, I, I try to remind people all the time, these companies are spending millions and millions of dollars for the explicit purpose of conditioning our neurology, our brains. I mean, they are, they are tempting in a very explicit and direct way to say, we're going to inspire a certain neurochemical response from people with the systems of reward that we built into our platform. Right. So we're all being, uh, all of us who are on social media are these guinea pigs who are being experimented on by huge Silicon Valley corporations that are really, really good at getting people to be conditioned to react in a certain way. And so if you go on left Twitter, the reward that you get for saying, hey, you know what, this thing is not offensive, this is not a big deal, this person's okay, yeah. is essentially nil. The reward you get for saying this person is evil and should be uh, exiled from the community are very high. And yeah. when, you when you have those incentives in place, human behavior will, will, will be shaped uh, accordingly. God, that is so true. Uh, not that you have the fucking answer, but I mean, I think about this a lot, and this is all of this shit is disturbing to me. What the fuck does anyone do about that? About this? So I'm not. I, I don't. I certainly don't see any uh, avenues through which um, left discourse writ large gets fixed right now. Um, I I just think that the habits are too uh, deeply ingrained, and that there's just this built-in um, self-defense system where if anyone points out that things are unhealthy, they are then immediately dismissed and, and considered to be one of the bad guys and picked out of the of the, um, of the movement. Yeah. You, here's what I say whenever I want, um, whenever you know, leftists come to me and sort of in despair and say, "What do we do?" Which which actually happens fairly often. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that I've been doing in the last couple of years when I haven't been on the internet is I spent a lot of time as a housing activist in New York City. Um, I chose housing because I wanted something really local. I wanted to be able to like see the impact of the work I was doing on the community. Right. Uh, something diverse, uh, something real, right? Like not, not a generalist left organization mm -hmm. where we would debate first principles, but literally like, okay, this landlord's a scumbag who's trying to use dirty tricks to get their... Uh, tenants out of the apartment building so he can sell it to a developer. Right. How how can we organize an action against that? Right. Yeah. Concrete. And and um, I've never. I mean, these are very very left people. Mm. We do things like you know everyone shares their pronouns when we when we start a meeting. Um, and uh, there's a lot of people who I would certainly call woke, but I've never in two and a half years now of being involved in this had seen one of these problems like with the meltdown but it happened online all the time yeah 
And so I really, I tell people all the time, if you can find a, a good solid group in your area that you think does real important work, even if there's not making much of an impact, because that's hard, but something where you tangible, right? Where like you go out, you know, when I go out, sometimes I would go canvassing and you go and you go to a zip, uh, zip code and you knock on doors mm-hmm. and look, I hate it. Yeah. Like I find that so awkward and <laughs> Some people are so mad that you came to their door and stuff. Yeah. But, but when I'm done, I leave saying, okay, today I talked to X number of people. And like, that actually happened. You know, I can wrap my hands around it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's real. And that has to be, I think, people's escape. People who are really struggling with this stuff have to, I don't, I genuinely don't think you can reform. You certainly can't reform like left Twitter, right? It's, it's beyond help. But what you can do is you can engage in politics in ways that aren't yelling on the internet. Right. Yeah. Uh, what do you think it, it, it is purely the, the because I, when I think of this, I think, well, it has so much to do with the anonymity of the internet, but, but it's not always anonymity. Like things that you'll get that people will do online with their name and face attached to it are not things that they would do or say in person as just generally and and I, so it's not the anonymity I, I don't know what that impulse is to be a different entity whether you're online or in person that, that and you have experience with both of those things where it's like you've seen the left or, the, or you've seen this um manifest itself online and as you're describing it in person and in person these things are much rarer these kinds of fallouts and and online they're like Every, as you said, every single day you can find some outrage about something. Um, what is that? Yeah, you know, I mean, my assumption is that most people on the internet are pussies in real life. Yeah. You know, I mean, who are willing to say stuff they would never say in real life. You right. know, I, I just think it, I really think it is that, you know, the internet has erased the human from the, the picture, right? Like, um, when, uh, I, years and years ago, I, I read about some research. They were trying to, research road rage and why it happened mm-hmm. and what they did is they contrasted things that start road rage incidents with things that pass unnoticed in um with people are, are pedestrians walking down the walking down the street so you know two people on the street it happens all, every, all, all the time every day mm-hmm. might you know bump into each other or get in each other's face or whatever and yet where in the car that would produce that often produces rage between two people you know, they, you, they just move out with their day. And the researchers thought that this is because, you know, car generally eliminates the possibility of eye contact. Yeah. And that simply by looking into another person's face and, like, if you if you have gotten in your way, you know, it registered on your face. It's like just brief little look of apology or whatever, and then a, a brief little look of it's not a big deal. And we go about it on our day, and the internet does the same thing, right? There's there's no human component to it. You you distilled humanity down to this uh, ugly elements that are only expressed uh, digitally, yeah. and so there's no human accountability. It seems, and why you know I I I'm, I'm it makes me wonder why. I mean I I'm I'm. I'm sure I'm just as much guilty of this as anyone else because I'm not exempt from this sort of difference in persona online and personality in person. But what I, I wonder that process, I mean, 
because you 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 were very active on social media before, right? I mean, before you totally quit, you were extremely yeah. active, right? Yeah, way way too active. Right, and so do you? Maybe you can even tell me just personally then, like, do you do you remember? Or do you find yourself to behave differently as well? Like, is this true even of you? And and if it is, like, what what is like what? Not what? How, how does that manifest? But but did did you notice it when you were online versus when you were in person? Like, was there a distinct awareness that you were kind of? operating these different ways because i'm curious if people even i guess where this is coming from is i'm curious if people even know that they're being different online and in person uh in the back of my head i knew right. I, I, I i had an awareness that i could be a real asshole online because right. i could be a real asshole online i really could have been <laughs> um i uh i think the thing is as much as i would explicitly reject this um, I, there was a part of my brain that really wanted to cultivate a kind of cool image or an image of at least of someone who was sarcastic and superior and, you know, and, and kind of snarky, right. which is not how I am in real life at all. But I think in part, you know, there are these kinds of archetypes in, on the internet, like people adopt these personas that are very unlike them in real life, yeah. but they're always the same sort of persona. So, so like, Everyone is drenched in irony. Everyone acts like everything is beneath them. <laughs> Everyone acts, acts like bored with it, with everything that's happening, right? Like those are the, the common places. And it's it's hard, it's really hard to notice yourself sort of picking up on these things um, and maintaining sort of who you are. Yeah, that's so fucking true. That is like the persona that just sort of almost gets automatically uh adopted uh online there's so much of that there's so much snark it's 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 i i can even find that shit humorous but it's too much even for me often it's just like i i and it's i it, it i've never really thought about it the way you're saying it but it's so true that I, I i guess it's just like a least common denominator thing like well that is sort of an easy way to be and it's common out there and it's good for like the 140 whatever the fuck character uh amount these quick hit sort of pieces of snarkiness or being super ironic or whatever the fuck it is i guess it's just the low-hanging fruit of personas you know to me the thing that's even more corrosive than the snark specifically is you know the attitude i've already seen everything in the world i've already understood everything in the world there's nothing that is new to me. There's nothing I have to learn. There's nothing that surprises me. Anytime that I come into a situation, I need to project this sense of being uh, already over it, having already experienced it, and not impressed by anything. Yeah, that's so true. Fuck. Yeah, I mean, that is so true. Um, and depressing. And and everywhere. I mean, it's 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 absolutely everywhere on the internet and uh yeah it sucks uh you're a lucky man to be off of it um and i guess before we wrap up i did want to talk to you a little bit about especially with uh the debates coming up um what is happening right now with are you i mean i'm assuming you have to be paying attention to all that shit the democratic side okay so i know i can name six or seven of the dems i know that there is a uh 
an unusual number of Democrats. Um, I know that Biden has been in the lead and that like Warren and Kamala Harris and Bernie Sanders have been a little bit behind. Um, I I should say for like for context here, um, I have not read an article with the word Trump in the headline in two years. Wow. Um, because I that was one of the things I, I just thought, you know, um, Trump is bad articles weren't adding anything to my life. So I just cut them out. For me, it's still Bernie. Um, I, you know, why do I like Bernie more than Warren? Well, clearly because she's a woman. No, um, <laughs> no but because uh, one of the, you know, policy is important. They're both great policy people. Um, but temperament in the president is perhaps even more important in an era in which nothing can get through the Senate. Yeah. And so, uh, Bernie Sanders has a directly antagonistic relationship to capitalism. He is someone who, who says uh, capitalism is bad. Yeah. Now, I, I think it's debatable whether Bernie's actually a socialist. I mean, that's a, you know, we don't have to go there. But sure. He is. He is certainly someone who understands that the interests of most people are directly opposed to the interests of the richest people. Yeah. And that temperament, that that bone deep suspicion of and rejection of the wealthy, I think mean, that's what we need. Yeah. It's also the most authentic thing. I mean, he's been beating the same drum forever. And and I think that that right now matters so much. I honestly I I, I never I should just say I well, no. First, I should say I'm super fucking jealous of you for not having read Trump articles for the last two years because I've read every single one and they do not make my life better at all. Um, in fact, they actively make it worse. But the the thing I was going to say is I, I I never. I mean, I thought Trump was going to lose by a lot. I thought a lot of things. All of the, all of my predictions don't come true. But my sense is is that he's Bernie is the one that in 2020 would actually beat Trump the most handily because I just, I don't know. I, I, I go through all of them and I picture them going toe to toe with him and Bernie, I, first of all, I feel like he would have won in 2016 for sure. And for I just sure. feel like now he can do that fucking Trump thing, which is like, be this boisterous, loud, super energetic and kind of like angry guy. And I think that that, Temper, it's sort of temperament, it's sort of persona, but I just think that persona is something that could win. And I, and I, I liked Bernie in 2016. I still like him. But as far as like the thing I always hear is I just want to pick the person who's going to win. You know, that's what you hear so much on the left. And people mm -hmm. that they want to like lean towards Biden for that reason. And I kind of fell victim to that too. But then I started seeing him and he just like, uh, this past Joe Biden day, you know, it's just not, it's not 2020. And I just, I've started to think that Bernie is the, is the one that is the most that, uh, cause I don't think people as depressing as this might be, I don't think people care first and foremost about policy anymore, or if they ever did, I don't know, but like fucking Donald Trump won. People aren't exactly paying attention to the finer details. And I think Bernie in that sense, and for that reason, has like 
the winnability thing around him for me, you know, uh, yeah. because he's just who he is and it's the most obviously authentic thing. And I think that's kind of, whether it's a good thing or bad thing, all people care about. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that people like him and I think that they like him because, I mean, he's just what he is. He yeah. is this, you know, uh, loudmouth, you know, Brooklyn Jew, you yeah. know, and, yeah. who has had a literal lifetime of political engagement um, and a lifetime of political service. And, uh, you know, I mean, look, I don't want to get into the fetishizing of the white working class stuff. I understand why people find that distasteful, yeah. blah, blah, blah. The fact of the matter is, you know, we got to win Wisconsin and we got to win Michigan. Yeah. Like that was the two states that we caused that, that cost Hillary Clinton the election. Um, Bernie won the primary in Michigan. Right. And, you know, or, you know, Bernie won in West Virginia in the primary. Bernie won every county. Right? Yeah. And so I, I think that he has a kind of uh, uh, credibility in the eyes of people who have been turning away from the Democratic Party. Now, could we say that they're turning away from the Democratic Party in part because of sexism and racism? Sure. Yeah. But that's, that can't be the end of the discussion. We can't afford to, like, just give these people away. We have to find a way to attract them to the party. And I think Bernie can do that. Uh, it's interesting that there seems to be this, like, thirst uh, for this authenticity thing, which feels like a big reason why Trump got elected. Because if you, I think a lot of people saw Hillary as like a robot, anybody but a robot. And there was this like a live wire, super quote unquote authentic thing that almost was like branded and sold like a fucking huckster. Like that's his thing almost, you know, I say what I want, I do what I want. But I feel like there's, I, I, it makes me wonder if that's almost that desire for that is, is there's a correlation to that fear that we were talking about before of, can I say this? Is this going to be okay to say? It's almost like it's, it's diametrically opposed to someone like Donald Trump. And I think Bernie seems so much, and it's true. He does just say what he thinks and, and, and has for so long. And I, and I, I wonder if some of that extreme desire to pull away from like someone like a typical clean cut, watch what they say candidate and towards someone like Bernie, or even for that matter, Trump is a reaction to this sort of like, I don't know, politically correctness, political correctness is the right term, but sort of a reaction to that fear that we were talking about before. Yeah. I mean, in an election that was about people's economic anxiety, the, the Hillary Clinton campaign ran on celebrity glitz and glamour. Right. Yeah. I mean, they never stopped pulling out their celebrity endorsers. And, you know, it was, they were, you know, Trump was going to the county and saying, you know, what do you have to lose from trying Trump? You know, yeah. like, I mean, there's this famous clip where, you know, he says, I believe it was in Michigan. You know, he says, your schools are no good. You've got no job. 58% of your youth is unemployed. What the hell do you have to lose? Yeah. And the answer to that message is not Katy Perry. Is not what? Katy Perry. Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, that's, that's definitely not the answer. Yeah. Yeah, it was the most tone-deaf campaign, I, I agree. It seemed even that way at the time, and I don't know how that ended up being what it was, but yeah, I mean, it seems so incongruous to the moment 
we were in. It seemed just deaf, you know? And I, I mean, I guess maybe part of that was, well, she's obviously going to win anyway. So you could kind of play it in the safest possible lane, the most traditional lane. But I don't know. The writing seemed to be on the wall that that was not the fucking way to do it. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, all right, cool, Freddie. Uh, if there's anything else you want to talk about or, or get out there, uh, let people know about, uh, go for it. Otherwise, well, yeah. So here's, what, here's one thing that I, I, since we talked about wokeness and everything, mm-hmm. uh, I get, I occasionally will get kind of anguished emails from people who say, who are, who share a lot of my politics and say, you know, I'm a leftist. I believe in the fight against racism, the fight against sexism and homophobia, but I think that wokeness has gone too far and that uh, there's all these negative consequences to it. And their fear seems to be that, like, wokeness will last forever, that wokeness will take over everything. Mm. But, but my critique is not that wokeness is too powerful. I, my critique is that, is that it's weak. Mm. But what, what we're actually talking about here, it's impossible to tell if you're in academia or in media um, because uh, all you see around you are people who are like you, but yeah. the wokest world is tiny. We're talking about a few thousand people, you know? Yeah. The, the vast majority of people know nothing about these politics, and if they did, would reject them. You know, yeah. even people who self-identify as progressive in significant majorities identify political correctness as dangerous, yeah. right? yeah. So the, the fear is not that wokeness is going to rule forever and take over the world. The fear is that wokeness will produce a backlash, and that backlash will throw out the baby with the backwater mm-hmm. and will result in actual losses of progress for people of color. Yeah, and I, right. I think that, and I think that has to be the way that people have to approach this mentally. You have to think about this. Uh, as a small world that dominates a few spaces like the universities, like media, like publishing, but that that dominance does not extend more than a foot beyond the door. And that has to be central to your analysis. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely worth keeping in mind as well. Uh, All right, cool. Well, Freddie, I really appreciate your time. And um, I'm I'm glad that your book's coming out soon. Um, I can't wait to read it. What's the title again? Cult of Smarts? the Cult of Smart coming out uh, sometime in early 2020. Uh, cool. Yeah, where books are sold. Yeah, I'll keep my eyes peeled, and everyone listening should too. Uh, Freddie is a fucking super smart guy, speaking as Cult of Smart. And uh, yeah, man, I appreciate your time, Freddie. And uh, I'll let you know when we post it. All right, thanks for having me on. Yeah, man, thanks. Okay.